0: Now what? Now what? It's been three years, three years that we've been listening to his teaching, three years where they followed the teaching of Jesus, speaking directly into where life kind of intersects with hope. Three years of watching miracles happen, three years of seeing supernatural power happen, three years of walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and eating with Jesus, three years making their way slowly to Jerusalem for what? Really? To just watch him die? After all that activity, just to watch him die? Uh, they, they shouldn't have been surprised. They really should not have been surprised by that. He told them three times that he would die. Three times that he would be buried. Three times that he would rise again from the dead. And he said to them, look, if the tomb's not empty and you don't see me again, don't print that. Don't tell that story. Don't follow me. But if I do, and you do see me again, because you will, he says, just wait, just wait. Acts chapter one, just listen as I read. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do in the gospels and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs. In in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it talks about how he walked around for 40 days. 500 people saw him and sat with him and ate with him and talked with him. And it goes on, and he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I know you've learned from me. I know that I have taught you. I know that I have trained you. I know that you live with me for three years, but you do not know what you do not know. So right now, just wait. But, but they said, but we could tell your story now. No, he says, just, just wait. But you died and you rose again and people need to know this. He goes, no, just, just wait. He says, you know the facts, but you're not ready yet. Wait for the gift that I told you about. Well, the disciples are getting a little more excited now, right? And they're starting to lean in. And in verse six, he continues on in Acts one. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He's saying, are you going to let us rule and reign now? They're asking, are you going to be popular now? Are we going to be popular now? Are people going to want to hear from us now? Are you going to make my life better? And he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And they interrupt, so we're going to be famous now. He goes, no, no, just... Calm down, he says, because you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go to heaven. So Jesus leaves them and says, just wait. I'm going to give you a gift, but just wait. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit that I talked to you about, but just wait. And bzzz, I don't know what flying noise he made when he went there. But, you know, the entrance of Jesus into our world, pretty low-key, right? Into a cave, into poverty, but man, the exit was pretty amazing. You just see him kind of go up into the sky. And he says, but don't look for me. You'll have everything you need. My job here is done. And this move by Jesus changed everything. Everything. So let me ask you a question about change. I want you to think for a moment think about weaknesses personality problems bad habits and poor attitudes now raise your hand and say there's at least one thing i would like to change about the person sitting next to me just raise your hand (laughs) no no or or about yourself or about yourself see do you think if you chose to change you could like do you think it would actually happen because Nowadays, you hear the phrase all the time, look, I'm not going to change. Take me or leave me, this is who I am. right? This is just who I am. Accept me for the way I am. What you see is what you get. It's not going to be any different. And I think it's an important question to ask about change. Because if the actual truth is that we're not actually capable of much change, not capable of much transformation, um, why in the world would we want to face the disappointment That comes by getting our hopes up that things might change, that I might change. Why would you want to go there? See, the question's a real one, and it's not a physiological question. It's not a sociological question. It's a theological question. What's the potential of a human life live under the full submission of the Holy Spirit? I mean, really, really, what's the potential of our human lives if we were to live fully under the submission of the guidance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Today I want to address, what's the deal? What's the deal with the Holy Spirit anyway? Today I want us to think about the role that the Holy Spirit played and the role that he played in the life of Jesus. What did the Holy Spirit do in Jesus' life? So here's what we're going to do. For the next 10 minutes, um, we're going to kind of turn this into a classroom setting, okay? For the next 10 minutes, I'm going to channel my inner kind of boring old Kerry lecturer self. And, and we're going to dig deep. All right, we're going to do some study here. And then a little bit later on, we're going to shift the, the, the uh, speed a little bit. And we're going to have a real heart-to-heart. A real heart-to-heart. and Get very real about this whole Holy Spirit stuff, okay? But first, I want to spend some time in the classroom. So I'm going to ask you to think and study hard and be really attentive and lean in and don't send notes to your neighbor. And and, and so now, officially, class is in session. All right, class? I want to start with this. Jesus was a real human being. He was also fully God. He was always, actually, fully God. But at the same time, when he was here on this planet and walked the earth, he was fully human. He was a real human being. Now, historically, there's always been two heresies about Jesus. The most prominent one in our day is that Jesus, he wasn't really God. He was just a really good guy. Really good guy. the he, one that people use a lot. He was a good man. He was a wise man. He was a moral man. He was a good teacher. But he wasn't really God. But the earlier heresy before that was just the opposite of that. It was that Jesus wasn't really human that this heresy was called Docetism, And if you want to get technical, it's from a Greek word that comes from dokeho, which means to seem. See, Jesus only seemed human. He looked human. He acted human, but he wasn't really human. He was just pretending to be human. So let me give you an example of what this looks like. All right, so first of all, we all recognize this little logo here, right? Right? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of like, oh, of course, we knew that was under your coat all the time. Um, See, Superman, right? You got this logo, Superman. See, Superman pretended to be human. He looked human, but he was, in fact, a strange creature from another planet with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal people. See, when I was a kid, I loved Superman, loved Superman. I wanted to be Superman. I wanted his strength and be able to fly and x-ray vision and all that stuff. Uh, but mostly, I wanted a chest that could carry a big S like this, right? A big, magnificent chest with this big S on it uh, that can, accumulate, uh, can a, accommodate this big, curvy S, uh, capital letter S thing. But the reality is I can't. This doesn't work, right? So I just can't do it. I need a different letter, a little more less curvy letter, kind of like a lowercase I really would do it. And it would kind of stand for something like inadequate man or insipid man or something like that right see i could have pulled that off i could have pulled that one off but superman this strange superhero from another planet he disguised himself of course as as clark kent and clark kent was kind of a geeky guy but it was an act right everybody knew clark kent is actually superman it was just a disguise superman was not human whatsoever and there are some implications to that i could admire superman but I could never be like him. I could admire Superman. I could be rescued by Superman, but he could never be my role model. I couldn't aspire to be like him because he's not human. So when you really think about this, this is what the Old Testament, sorry, the New Testament writers were kind of trying to get across to us. They were quite insistent about this. The whole point was you need to understand Jesus was a real human being. See, the Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this in chapter 4, and and he's becoming, and he's saying, look, in every way he was human. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. See, it's an amazing thought. It's an amazing thought. You think of all the temptations you've ever experienced, arrogance or pride or sloth or lust, whatever it is. The Bible says that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we all are, yet without sin. But he understands, and he knows about temptation. See, there's this other remarkable thing. The, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, he writes in chapter 2 that as Jesus was growing up as a boy, he grew in wisdom. Now, think about that for a moment. It means that according to Scripture, Jesus didn't just have things downloaded in his head from heaven. He had to learn stuff. He had to read things. He had to do the study. He had to do hard work. See, our, 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 our way of Christianity kind of misleads us sometimes. Think of the songs we sing. That Christmas song, Away in a Manger. And part of it goes like this. Away in the Manger. The cattle are lolling. The poor baby wakes. But the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? Really? Anybody here had any one of those newfangled, no crying babies ever? I, I mean, I was, I've ordered them. They've never come in the mail. See, there's no place in the Bible that says the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. He was a real baby. And he didn't lie there in the crib thinking, well, I'm this omniscient little boss baby. And, and, and I'm just going to gurgle and coo. And they're not going to know, but I'm going to take some notes about the human condition. It, was, it wasn't like that. The internal son of God somehow, in ways we will never understand until we get to heaven, limited All that knowledge and all that power became a real boy. There's some staggering love in that. There's some over-the-top love in that. See, unlike, unlike Clark Kent, Jesus got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He had to grow up. He had to learn stuff. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to ask questions and learn things, just like you and me. But bullets never did bounce off his chest. He got cut and he got whipped and and he cried and he, he bled and he felt loneliness and anguish. So here's the key question. If Jesus really did become human, if he limited himself that in some miraculous fashion we don't understand, and if he really did become like us in every way without sin, how did he pull that off? How did he get the power to do what he did? So let's look at some scripture now about what highlights this for us. Let's look in the book of Luke, chapter 3. We read that Jesus was baptized. And then he was, after he's baptized, the heavens opened up. And then they heard a voice. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying to Jesus, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then after the baptism in Luke 4 we read, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert. For 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit, we read. He submitted to the leadership and the guidance of the Spirit in his life. The Gospel of Mark uses even stronger language, and he writes that the Spirit drove Jesus. He couldn't help it. He was driven by the Spirit, and he submitted to the Spirit's leadership. In verse 14, we're told that when Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him started to spread, and people gossiped, and the whole countryside knew about him, he launches into his public ministry, and he goes to Nazareth. And on Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue, as it was his custom to do, and they handed him a scroll. And he's going to teach from this scroll. And then he launches into his public ministry with this passage in the scroll. The spirit of the Lord is on me, because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Boom, mic drop. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, the secret, the secret to Jesus' power in his life, in his ministry, is that he lived in utter reliance on a partnership with the Holy Spirit. And he says at the beginning of his ministry, he says it, he goes, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Now, this word anointing. It's one of those weird f- terms, right? Those churchy, speary kind of words, anointed. And people say, there's an anointing on this place. And, and there's an anointing on that person. And, and what does that mean? Well, it comes from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, when a person was to be set apart, set apart to serve God, somebody who was representing God would take a container of oil, usually olive oil, and they would place that olive oil on a person's forehead as a way of saying, this person... This person is, is uh, um, on a mission from God. And they've been set apart for the equipping from God. And the odd thing was that it usually happened on people who didn't expect it. There's that great theological movie that we just watched, right? Blues Brothers. And in the Blues Brothers, there's this ongoing joke between these two brothers, Jake and Elwood, who are felons. They're wannabe blues musicians. They're trying to escape the police to raise money for the orphanage. And periodically, people throughout the movie would ask them, what are you doing this for? And as we saw in the video, they would say, because we're on a mission, a mission from God, right? It's this ongoing joke in the movie. Two felons, two wannabe blues brothers uh, on a mission from God. And over and over and over again in scripture, that's what's playing out. God takes the most unlikeliest of people, and he gives them a mission. And he says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you. And, oh, man, you're going to see stuff you've never seen. I'm going to use you. And he just kind of picks people that you would never think. And, and the business of anointing, you see, there was nothing magical about the oil. It, it was kind of a symbol. It was a picture of the fact that the spirit was going to rest on that person and do stuff. So like in 1 Samuel, we read that Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head. And, and he says, Saul, you're the man. You're the man. You're on a mission from God. And of course, Saul says, I'm not the man. I mean, my tribe's Benjamin. I'm from the Benjamin tribe. The smallest of all the tribes. It's, it's the smallest of anybody. But then we're told later on in Samuel 10, verse 10, that the Spirit of God came on him with power when he was anointed. Later down, six chapters later, chapter 16, uh, we read, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And Samuel says, David, you're the man. You're on a mission. And all David's brothers were, Pfft, oh, come on. Really? He's the runt. He's the runt of the whole litter. He's this little shepherd boy. Go play with your little sling. And then in First Samuel 16, we read, And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. See, it's this physical anointing became a picture of spiritual reality because God knew that Saul and David were going to face really critical crossroads, really tough, hard, key moments when they might be overwhelmed or tempted or confused and taken off path. And everything rested on this, that in those key moments when things could have gone all kinds of crazy, they would remember I'm anointed, I'm the Lord's anointed, I'm on a mission from God, I have God's spirit with me right now, and they would stop, and they would pray, and they'd say, spirit, give me wisdom, guide me, empower me, give me wisdom, and then did they always live up to their anointing? Absolutely not. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And so Israel started to look forward to a day when someone would be anointed by the full Spirit of God and that you could count on them and they wouldn't fail. And they talked about this person. They called this person the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was simply a Hebrew word that meant the anointed one. And and that person would experience the full anointing or outpouring or empowering partnership with the Spirit. But the Greek word that we use... For this is Christos, where we get Christ. It's not Jesus' last name. It's his title. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. And Jesus' whole life was this adventure of wonder and miracles and life change with the Spirit. Every moment, every day was a partnership between Jesus and the Spirit that anointed him. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, we read in the Bible. He was baptized by the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He moved into ministry at the, in the power of that Spirit. And in Matthew 12, we write, Jesus drives out evil spirits by the Spirit of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that in the very beginning, he has been designated the Son of God by the Spirit through the resurrection. And then all the way through his life, Peter kind of sums it up in Acts 10 and says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit in power. And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He was anointed. By the Spirit. But here's the real important news in all this. The Bible's teaching on this whole business of anointing didn't just end with Jesus. There's another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you, Paul writes, stand firm in Christ. And here's that word again. He anointed us. He anointed us to set his seal of ownership on us and put his Spirit in our hearts what we read is that you are anointed. You have the anointing. You've got the power, right? You've got the anointing. Everyone in this room that knows Jesus and follows him is anointed. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't depend on how you feel. It doesn't matter whether you feel anointed or not. You are anointed according to scripture. God has anointed you and set his spirit in your heart. Holy Spirit has come on you in power. And what happened with Saul and David, what happened supremely in the whole life of Jesus has also happened to every one of us who has given our life to Jesus and say, we follow him. And you gotta believe this. And when I say believe, not agree. Yes, this is right, he's talking, he's talking good doctrine here. No, you gotta live into it. You have to live into it. You see, Jesus Christ is not just a forgiver of sins he's not just our rescuer he's our hope he's our future and we have to follow him to get there he's the supreme example of what human life can become when fully lived under the 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 power and the guidance of the spirit when God said let us make humanity in our own image He's saying, look at Jesus, this is how I made you. To live like this, to do stuff like this, to trust me and love me and follow me like this. That's what God had in mind. He was guided and he was given power from one moment to the next, all through his life by the Holy Spirit. And he led a richly interactive life with God. And that same anointing has been given to all of us. All of us. All right, class is officially over now. Now let me shift gears a little bit. I want to leave the classroom setting and all the, you know, head stuff. Let's do a little heart-to-heart here. And it comes down to this question. Do you really want the Spirit's power? Do you really want that anointing? I mean, really want it. Because while we all have our own purposes for desiring the Spirit's presence, and power in our lives, so does God. And God has a superior preference and purpose around why he's giving us the power and the presence of his Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that each follower of Christ is given a manifestation of the Spirit for common good. And these manifestations, these gifts, which we'll talk more about in the weeks to come, are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, these reflections on the Spirit's presence and activity activity in us has actually nothing to do with us. Has nothing to do with our own natural abilities. Has nothing to do with our own desiring in that sense. We have not received them because we've earned them and somehow we've wanted them enough. Since these gifts come according to God's will, and not ours, it needs to be clear that we should not be, I don't know, lording it over people, boasting about it, or using it for our own entertainment and significance. See, the Spirit is intentional as He apportions these spiritual gifts to every one of us, each person according to His will and purposes. Now. I know a lot of us want certain gifts. I know that. Uh, we pray for that. We've been told to pray for certain gifts for lots of reasons. And, and you just want it. You just want it. And, and you think, I think I could use this. And I think it would be great. And I think that if I could do this and if I could do that and, and, and those things, see, the most obvious and stated purpose for all these manifestations is for the common good and edification of everybody else. It's for the common good and edification of the church. It's like the Holy Spirit says, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some things here, but I have a plan, because this is my church, and, 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 and I got a plan for this church. So I'm gonna give Sheena these gifts, I'm gonna give Matt these gifts, and I'm gonna give Catherine these gifts, and I'm gonna give Sam these gifts. And see, the Spirit desires, what He desires is to use us when our hearts are aligned with his vision, when we are filled with a genuine love for his church, and when we desire to see the church grow in love for everybody else, and grow in love for God. And that's when the spirit gets really empowered in our lives. See, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love these people? Look around, look around. Just If you're at home, look at that one other person in your room. <laughs> How much do you love these people? When you look around at these people, do you think to yourself, man, I love these people so much. I pray that God empowers me to do stuff that will encourage all of them so much and lead all of them towards a deeper life and walk with Him. See, what I'm asking is how much do we care? Because that's what it comes down to. See, the Holy Spirit gives us supernatural ability to serve the people that God has placed around you, in the church, in your neighborhood, at your work, at your school, where you shop. And if God cares enough about his church to give you spirit-empowered ability, shouldn't we care enough about the church to use it? And to use it for God's purposes. But I think what happens is, is that for far too many of us, we seek the spirit for, wrong reasons, misunderstood reasons, and often what we do is we seek it for the reason of attention. The Holy Spirit works to glorify Christ according to the Gospel of John, but so many of us use the Spirit to draw attention to ourselves. The Corinthian church was notorious for this. The church became chaotic because individuals were not concerned about each other and with the betterment of the church, they were more concerned about themselves. They were trying to use these gifts of the Spirit for their own glory. They weren't interested in what God wanted to do in the lives of others. They just wanted to show off what God was doing in them. And they fought for attention and it resulted in mass confusion. First Corinthians 14, if you wanna read that story. See a sure sign of the Holy Spirit's work and that its work is being done to magnify Christ, is that that's what people talk about. They talk about Jesus. They don't talk about people. Self-glorification is something we struggle with. I mean, my pride is something I struggle with, but I'm genetically leaning that way as an American. It's one of the burdens of being a superpower. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. But, but you deal with this growing up, And what it has is you start to learn as as the spirit makes you more like Jesus, you begin to see things from his perspective. See, as a younger man, as a young youth pastor, I crave God's power in my life. And I thought, you know what? Gift of healing would be cool. I've been ready for this. Because that attracts large crowds. And I wanted to speak to large crowds. Oh, yeah, I might do some good for some people, too. Isn't that terrible? But now I want God's power because I don't want the attention. Because that's how it's meant. you look at Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, when the Holy Spirit really, truly moves, God is the one people focus on. God is the one that people praise. God is the one that people talk about. Jesus is the one that is lifted up. When the Spirit moved at Pentecost, most people knew that there was this weird power present, but they understood it came from God. That's why they didn't leave saying, man, Peter, what an amazing speaker. Oh, I love it when Peter speaks. He's so good. And man, he learned a new language in just like a matter of seconds. They didn't talk that way. They all talk, look, this has to be God. This has to be Yahweh. See, my prayer is that God would so empower us here at Central so radically that no one talks about us. And everybody talks about Jesus and what Jesus is doing in the neighborhoods and what God is doing miraculous stuff in the streets and in the walkways and the shopping marks of Hamilton. See, the second wrong motive though, that like, throws us off a little bit is this whole thing about miracle hunting. It is truly awesome when miracles take place. It's amazing. And awesome is a terrible word. It's overused. But it's amazing when miracles take place. When you experience something that cannot happen by natural means. And, 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 and yet, I've, I've yet to meet someone who doesn't want to see a miracle. But my concern is when people pursue miracles more than they pursue Jesus. See, God calls us to pursue him. Not what he might do in our midst. Or do in our life. Or do in the life of someone else. See scripture emphasizes that we should desire fruit. That we should concern ourselves with being more like God. And God wants us to seek him. To listen to him. To listen to his spirit. And then obey his spirit. See the point of it all is never miracles. It's never the point of it. But I'm telling you as we move into the neighborhoods. You will see miracles. But that's not the point. The point is that. God does stuff when we're not expecting it. And when you're faithful and serving Jesus, he will do things. And you step back and you go, whoa, that was just Jesus. And then that non-Christian neighbor you're talking to, let me tell you, that was just Jesus. Let me tell you why I know that was Jesus. Because that had nothing to do with Jesus working right now. And that's when they lean in. See, God wants us to trust him to provide miracles when he sees fit. To not just dole them out mechanically. To not have a worship service that they're going to happen just on this night, on this date. You have two months warning. Um, See, because miracles are never an end in themselves. The whole point of miracles is to point to something greater. To point to God. So the real question is, do you want to be led by the Spirit? Or do you want to lead the Spirit? You want to let the Spirit use and work through us? Or do you want to use and work through the Spirit. See, there have been many times when I've tried to lead the Spirit, when I wanted to direct Him and tell Him. I mean, you should listen to some of my prayers in my office for this place. I'm trying to tell God what to do. It's a lousy conversation, and I just hear Him laugh at me at times. See, the Holy Spirit was given to direct us. Desiring God means we, um, and, and desiring the Holy Spirit means that we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. By definition, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Spirit is not a passive, uh, sorry, a passive power that we can use when we feel we need to bring out the big guns. The Spirit's God. The Spirit's not a what. The Spirit's a who. It's a being who requires that we submit ourselves and be led by Him. But you've got to ask yourself, do you really want to be led by Him? Because honestly, if we allow ourselves as a church to be led by God's Spirit, I don't know what He's going to do. I can't put a five-year plan to this, and it's a little bit scary, and it's gonna change things, and we're gonna lose our comforts, and we're gonna lose our ability to control. I mean, what would it mean? What if he asks you to give up something? What if he asks you to give something that you're not ready to give up or ready to give? What if he leads us in a direction that we don't wanna go? What if he tells us to change things, to change jobs, to change structures, to change cities that we live in? What if he tells us to stay? What if he tells you not to leave? I mean, are you ready to hear what God wants you to do? What if he really shakes us up here at the church, really shakes our church up, and you think you've seen some changes now. It's nothing compared to when God really makes the changes happen. Are you willing to surrender to him no matter what? No matter what he wants to give us, no matter what he wants to take from us. Because we're about to ask God to do that. That's what the whole brunch thing is all about. We're about to ask him to lead us and to show us who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to do it. Because the calling is God's. His spirit is beckoning us. And the question is, are we gonna listen? The question is, are we gonna follow what we hear him say? See, the truly startling thought is that by not submitting to God, And by not totally trusting the Holy Spirit, we can be quite happy. That's the scary part. The scary part is that by not following what God tells us to do, we can be at our most comfortable and very, very content. And that is a very scary matter. That's not a small matter. We all have to answer the question, do we want to be led by the Spirit or do we want to lead the Spirit? Because when the Spirit leads, I'll wrap up with this. Two things happen. First of all, when we submit to the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit, He helps us become more like Jesus, more holy. It's this lifelong journey of putting our flesh to death, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5, by walking in the Spirit and not gratifying our own personal wants and desires. We can't live submitted to the Spirit and at the same time drive to make sure everything is done in a way that I like it, gratify the flesh. Because the two are opposing to one another. The works of the flesh are things like anger and strife and dissension and idolatry. Whereas the works of the spirit are things like love and self-control and patience and joy and faithfulness. And they're very, very different from one another. In fact, the distinction is so different that Paul writes that uh, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, Billy Graham, Billy Graham made a statement that if you took the the Holy Spirit out of the theology of the church, nothing would happen. Nothing would change. The church would probably look exactly the same. I have a lot of not yet followers of Jesus, friends, who are more controlled, more loving, more joyful than a lot of other Christians that I know. See, we have the living God inside us, though. We've been anointed and full of God's spirit, there ought to be a huge distinguishable difference in what people see in us. And crucifying the flesh, that's the issue. That's the issue. This phrase, crucifying the flesh, not a real friendly sermon topic, really. Um, I thought about one of our series. Crucify the flesh, that'll bring them in. Um, (laughs) It's not appealing, is it? It's not appealing. I think this is because God wants us to be very clear on this, very clear on what we're getting into. He wants us to know that the the gifts of his Holy Spirit are not for our own purpose. They're not for our own pleasure. They're not for our own significance and and kind of spouting out to the world. The Spirit leads us towards holiness. The Spirit is here to accomplish God's purpose, not ours. And the way of the Spirit is not this kind of gentle downhill coast. It's work sometimes. It's an uphill trudge sometimes. There's all kinds of distractions and difficulties because it's change. And it's letting go of the things that we think we can control. And while the path might be windy and it might be difficult, you're always amazed by, oh, God just did that. But God just did that. But God just did that. We take a step, take a step, and we become followers of Jesus. At some point along the way, when you agree with God, you're not meant to be ruled by what you want and by your own personal passions like anger or self-indulgence or whatever what happens is you remove that central place in your life and then things start to change and transformation stops to happen and maybe you haven't made that decision yet but it's a decision that each one of us have to make I'm gonna let God rule not me it can't be done mindlessly it can't be done thoughtlessly You gotta make a true decision to crucify yourself. Each one of us have to make that decision. But then when the spirit really rules, another thing happens too. And we become more like Christ, but become more like Christ's love. We become more like the way Jesus loves one another. As Paul addresses these these gifts of the spirit, he writes, uh, but I'm going to show you, he lists all these spiritual gifts, right? In Corinthians, he goes, "But well, let me show you a more excellent way. It's if he's saying, all those gifts are cool. All those crazy sp- supernatural things are pretty amazing. But let me tell you about the one thing that's really important. Let me tell you about the thing that's really going to change you, really change the world. And in chapter 13, he writes this famous love letter. And he says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. This passage is so powerful because... It redirects our focus from the supernatural to the gifts of love. He specifically says that without love, I don't care what you do, you can prophesy, you can heal, you can speak in tongues, it's worthless, absolutely worthless. See, the Holy Spirit comes in and and fills us with God's love and enables us to love one another and that's when things change. Paul writes in Ephesians, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And if I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that's my prayer for us. My prayer is not that Central is known for great music or great youth groups or great children's ministry or great cafe or great events or great preaching. My prayer is that Central is known for a group of people. Man, they know how to love each other. Man, they know how to love strangers. And man, they live out this thing called loving God so much. I think I'm going to check it out. That's the rep. That's the rep that we're praying happens here. And like our Savior Jesus, who poured out his life with his own blood, we have reason to rejoice and give down our lives in service and help and, and gifting ourselves to others. It's our hope. Romans 5.5 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame. This hope to be like Jesus' love will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts in the next two weeks. We're going to talk about manifestations and giftings and the weird stuff that the Holy Spirit does. But we can never forget two things. The main reason, the only reason, is to lead us into God's purpose. And whatever He asks us to do, we do it with a kind of love that is so outrageous. People talk about it, and they talk about God as a result. Let's pray. Father God, as we move into the new, we don't do it as a strategy. We don't do it as a a way to grow our church. We do it as a way to follow you. And we ask that you would take us and you would make make us like you. We recognize that the difference between spirituality and carnality is like five seconds. And in those five seconds that we make a choice, I pray, Holy Spirit, give us the ability to stop and to pause, and choose to follow you, and choose to crucify our flesh, and choose to live according to your purpose. And when we do it, have our eyes wide open to not only what you're doing, but wide open to the person you want us to love, the person you want us to walk alongside, the person you want us to befriend, and stand with, and sit with, and point to your son, Jesus, and the way we love him, and the way we talk, who you are. So Spirit, give us wisdom. Guide us and empower us. Give us wisdom to know how you want us to live, who you want us to be, and the way you want us to do it. And we trust you for the adventure that's ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.